journeying through a, a, a series I've called Route 66, so maybe the driving fits in with that. And uh, it's a, we're, we're taking kind of a big picture view through the Bible. We've come to the book of 2 Thessalonians. It's toward the back of the New Testament, although it's one of the earlier letters that's written. So we've looked at 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. Both of these, you have an insert in your bulletin this morning. Oftentimes I'll have a PowerPoint as well that, that, that shows, but... That didn't work this morning. Technical difficulties. So if you're a visual person and you track along having something visual in front of you, you want to be sure and get those notes out of the bulletin and you can maybe track with me a little bit there. Um, I've called this this study of Second Thessalonians and God's word from this part of scripture a view from the top. Because what happens in 2 Thessalonians is, is Paul's continuing a conversation that he had with this church, a conversation we started last week in 1 Thessalonians, where he was greatly encouraged by their faith. And there were, there were three components for the Thessalonian church that were critical. Their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope looking into the future. Remember that? Faith that looked back at what God had done for them and for us in redemption in Jesus Christ. That Christ died for us. And their, their, their faith in looking back and believing, trusting what God had done for us through Christ in the past, and they believed that, they trusted that. And then they looked ahead in hope as well. Their steadfastness kept going because of hope, not yet realized, but what they knew God had promised about Christ's return, about Jesus coming again. So Christ came and died for us, rose again, ascended into heaven, and here we are in the midst while we wait, still in this broken world, and awaiting his return. I talked about the Christian life being not unlike backpacking, mountain climbing. It's an uphill climb. It's not always easy. And it's sometimes the road seems steep, and and the the path not so well traveled, and yet this is the path that God has put us on. And so we, we continue, we persevere, we make sense out of the present and what turns we should make based on looking behind at what God has done, looking ahead at what God has promised. Those themes echo around again in the book of Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians was written somewhere between six months and a year following the first letter. And Paul's continuing to follow up with this church concerning their hope, their understanding of what's going on in the present, this was a church that was very much, a group of people, believers in Christ, that were very much looking forward to his return. And Paul wanted them to have a right perspective, a right perspective about the present because of a right view of God's promise to the future. Now let me go back to mountain climbing, hiking experience. Uh, one of, the, one, of the, one of the fun things that, that, that I got to do with my son uh, a few years ago is we, we climbed all the way to the top of Mount Adams. And Mount Adams is not an easy, e- easy mountain to climb. Those of you who have done it know that. Those of you that are, haven't done it, that's why you haven't done it. It's not an easy mountain to climb. And, 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 and we talked last week about that false summit. You think you're there. You think you're at the top only to find out that that wasn't really the top after all, and that's discouraging. you got a whole other mile, a whole 2,000 feet more to go, and yet we made it. And, and having been to the top, and if you've done that, where you, where you hike a trail again when you've been there once already, somehow it's easier 
Somehow you know the way, you know what's ahead of you, you know what to expect, you know what to carry, you know what not to carry. Anything heavy. You know how to leave things aside, but bring those essential things. And you know what to expect of the path along the way. I didn't get my hopes up about the false summit because I know that that's not quite to the top yet. I can pace myself and, and on I go. And so up at the summit, you know, now I've, I've, climbed, I've climbed Mount St. Helens as well. And Mount St. Helens, I can, I can see on some, some days, I can see it even from our house and, or in our neighborhood. And I've always wanted to set up a telescope now and look at the mountain more closely, because I can see from, from our neighborhood, I can see the ridge line that we made our way up. And I imagine if I put our telescope out there, I could see other climbers going up that ridge line, making their way over the rocks, and I know what the pathway is like. Well, the Christian life is like that. Sometimes it's good to have a clearer view from the top that helps, helps us make sense of, helps us know what to expect along the way. The whole climb seems a little clearer. And even if it's still difficult, we make more sense out of it because we know what to expect along the way. That's what Paul's doing in the book of Second Thessalonians. He's telling believers in Christ who are waiting for his return, he's telling them what to expect. He wants them to know what to expect because if they know what to expect, then they can know what to do along the way. Okay? So those are the two points that I have listed in those notes. Know what to expect and know what to do. What do we do in light of knowing what to expect? Knowing what to expect falls into two categories. What to expect in the Christian life at present, what to expect concerning the Lord's return. There were some, there were some um, uh, erroneous expectations about the Lord's return. There were some false summits in their thinking that could discourage them in life and the troubles that continued if they didn't realize how things actually were. So first of all, what do we expect? Let's open our Bibles to, to, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. The first thing, just describing the Christian life. I'm going to start in verse 3 of chapter 1. Paul's giving thanks for these believers in Jesus. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. As is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Paul is rejoicing in their progress in the Christian life, even in the midst of the afflictions and persecutions that they are enduring. The first point I want to make is, in the Christian life, knowing what to expect, what does God's blessing in the Christian life look like, and what does it not look like? It looks like growing abundantly in faith and in in love for every one of you. That that love for one another, that giving of yourself for others, that is increasing. Your faith in God, knowing what God has done, knowing what God has promised, and an increased trust and confidence in that. That's normal growth and, and progress in the Christian life. It's also evident here from that description what is not normal. Um... Sometimes we have the expectation that the Christian life is is going to be, well, I believed in Jesus now. God is a good God, so all of my troubles will be over. 
God will answer all my questions and solve all my problems. That, the, that life will be easier. The troubles will fade away. I will be prosperous. I will be happy. Well, that all sounds really nice. Unless that's not your, expect, unless that's not your experience. And when it was your expectation, and yet it's not your experience... That's when faith begins to weaken, when faith begins to crumble. But Paul talks about the increase of their faith and the increasing of their love for one another in the midst of affliction or just general troubles and being troubled by other people. That it isn't all good yet. It isn't all easy yet. And yet their faith is increasing. That seems to be the more normal Christian life, that it is an uphill climb. So he wants them to know what to expect. Verses 5 to 10, the gospel is a word from God to be obeyed. This is an interesting point here that I wanted to take time to make. Uh, our, our, our understanding of what it is when we share the gospel with others. Look at verse 5. There's evidence, this is evidence, this, you're prospering in the midst of trouble, and the trouble that others are bringing you, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. God is preparing us for glory. God is preparing us for his kingdom. And if you go to the gym, you might have a membership. You may not go. But if you exercise, then there's, there's that old saying, no pain, no gain, right? The effort and the exercise and even the pain that can be involved in that exercise, that good training is to make us stronger, to prepare us for something. And that's going on in the midst of life. We are being prepared. This is God's, this is God's, uh, God's workshop for eternity. God is preparing us now, even in trusting him in the midst of troubles, God is preparing us for his purposes for us in all of eternity. Worthy and fit of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That picture of, of Christ's coming in victory in vindication for those who have believed him, and in judgment of those who have obstinately, in rebellion, refused to accept his lordship, to receive his salvation and his rescue for, out of our rebellion. You see, we get this idea in our minds that Jesus is needy. Oh, come on. Look at Jesus there. He's such a nice guy. Won't you please believe on him? Jesus is a nice Jesus, really. He's, he's, he's sweet. He's, he just wants to be believed in. Come on, won't you? We almost get this pleading. So we, we lose sight of the fact that the gospel, the good news of salvation, which is ready in Jesus Christ, who died for us and rose again, we forget also that the gospel is a word from God, a message from God that must be obeyed because it is the only way. It's a word, it's a mandate from God that he has graciously extended for anyone who would believe it. But in the face of that, in the face of our, our rebellion as humanity, and then to say, no, I don't need God, I don't need his son, I don't need what God has, is re continued rebellion against the very graciousness of God. And if his son is spurned, only judgment awaits. 
That's the seriousness of the gospel. That our faith will be vindicated, but those who have refused God, invitation after invitation, Jesus is not needy and pleading, just hoping that somebody would believe in him. He is the Lord of the universe who is coming. And that's the reality that we are living in in the present. That Jesus is the Lord of the universe. He is coming and he will one day with finality bring judgment upon this rebellious world. All of it. Except those who have, who have believed in him for their rescue. For their salvation. So then in the midst of that, we resolve. Look at verses 11 and 12 of chapter 1. In the midst of that, then, we resolve. We intend. And this came out, actually, in the youth camp as well, that they, they made a decision. Choose you this day who you will serve. When, when Jesus comes, verse 10, he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, to be marveled on at among all who believe, because our testimony to you was believed. Verse 11, to this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, continuing to work and transform us, and he may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, what is he praying? He is praying that out of your resolve then to walk with the Lord and follow the, follow the Lord, that God would perfect that in us. And that he would perfect his work in you, that Christ would be glorified in you, the name of Christ would be glorified in you in every work of faith, because you believe you resolve, I am resolved no longer to linger. I will follow Jesus. But he will work that, it says, by his power. You see that going together? My decision, I resolve, I will follow the Lord. The youth heard that this week at camp. We hear it now. Choose you this day who you will serve. Who will we follow? And yet, the spirit of the living God is at work. It's not out of my strength. It's not out of my ability. I determine I will. But even that is the call of the Spirit working in us. You see that as, as you read later on in the book. There's this tension between the Spirit's working and our intending. That we make a choice. Now, I can't put those two together neatly. Some folks want me to do that. They want me to say, okay, take this, the act of our will. What, what, what I will choose, and yet God's sovereign choosing, and God is in charge. And how do those two together? How do those two go together? Do I have free will to choose, to resolve? Do, or is God sovereignly at work? Is God truly the sovereign of the universe? And yes, he is. And we're looking for how those intersect together. They don't have to. Those are parallel lines. We choose. We resolve. We determine. We believe. God at his word. And yet God is sovereignly working. God, by his spirit, is illumining so that you can believe. God is removing the veil so that we can believe. God is working and perfecting his work by his spirit in us, even as we are resolving to yield ourselves and present ourselves and be available to him. God is at work. We respond. The Christian life is a life of blessing in the midst of trouble. The Christian life is a life of, of, uh, of following in the midst of opposition. The Christian life is a life of hope and anticipation that what God has begun, 
God will finish. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. That, that balance together of our resolving for good and yet every work by faith that is done by his power, that balance together is, is played out in the next chapter. The next chapter says, I want you to know what to expect concerning the Lord's coming. Because there had been an idea going on in the, in, the, in the church at Thessalonica that the day of the Lord and his kingdom had already arrived. He says, I don't want you to be confused. I don't want you to be uncertain. I don't want you to be wondering, well, what? We're not sure what to believe, what to think. Has the Lord's kingdom already arrived or not? And what does that mean for us? And so he clarifies that. He describes, he gives them a short account of what's going to play out in the end times. Let me give you a very brief account. I had a chart of this, but we're going to have to do this verbally. Let me give you a very brief account. As described in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, just at the, at, the, at the end of this age, the Lord is going to step down from heaven. And in the, in the atmosphere, he is going with a shout of the, of the Lord with a voice of the archangel, of all those who have died already as believers in Christ, and we who believe in Christ and are still living at that time are going to be caught up. It's called the rapture. And we're going to be taken away to be with the Lord from that point on forever. And for seven years, there's going to be a period of judgment, great crisis and catastrophe on this earth. It's called the tribulation period. And during that time, there's an individual called the Antichrist. He's anti because he's in place of the real Christ. He's anti because he's in opposition to the real Christ. This Antichrist is going to present himself as the Christ, as the Messiah, as God upon the earth. It's going to be literally hell on earth for a seven-year period. But at the end of that period... After this Antichrist personage has declared himself to be God, has set him an image of himself in the temple to be worshipped as God, after that has happened, Christ is going to return with the armies of heaven and by the very word of his mouth, not a, not a tremendous battle in that sense, but by his word, he will slay the enemy. And then he will establish his kingdom. And there will not be any question, has the kingdom arrived? It will be very clear. It'll be very evident. And then dear, through his kingdom, righteousness will reign. Uh, the Lord will reign over all the earth and those who are part of his church, those who have believed on him, those who were caught up and who return with him will rule and reign with him in his kingdom over all the earth. Okay, that's a snapshot. Let's now read in chapter 2 and hear some of that described. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or be alarmed. Either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion or a particular rebellion occurs first. And the man of lawlessness, that Antichrist, is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, holding him back, that he may not be, so that he may be revealed in his time, but not yet. 
For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and lying wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion, allows the Antichrist to deceive them so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but rather had pleasure in unrighteousness. So there is judgment coming. Judgment coming in that God will allow a false Christ, a false Messiah for people who have rejected the true one. And yet, the Son will come, the Son will defeat, and Jesus will reign over all the earth. And when his kingdom comes, it will be very evident. There are ideas in our minds today, there are ideas out there today that talk about the kingdom of our Lord and make it less than it is. We take what is our present experience and imagine something of that or the best of that to actually be already the Lord's kingdom. It happens when it's said, well, the kingdom of God is really within us. The kingdom of God is Jesus' rule over those who believe in him. Well, Jesus should rule over those who believe in him. And yet, if the, if the extent of G- Christ's kingdom over the earth is simply his will over those who believe in him, I'm kind of thinking, is that all? Isn't it supposed to be more than this? Isn't it spo- where is the victory? When, when there seems to be this, this small portion who believe in and follow the Lord as far as the stretch of the earth as a whole, and yet the whole world seems to be still in active rebellion against the Lord and against his Christ, as Psalm 2 describes. There is a day coming when the kingdom will be obvious, when the rule of Christ will be over all the earth. As Psalm 2 says that he will rule this world with a rod of iron. He will be king, absolute king. We long for that day because he's a righteous king. He will rule justly and fairly. And everything you see around the world today that is not right, and you say, it isn't supposed to be like this, you're agreeing with God. It isn't supposed to be like this. And one day, it won't be. One day, it will be far better than this. Another way we, we, we have that, king is, that, that kingdom confused is when the kingdom, what I call the kingdom realized. So there's the kingdom spiritualized. It's, it's just a spiritual kingdom. It's not real. Another way is that the kingdom is, is, um, is realized today in our success, in our prosperity. You are the kingdom. And so you can have all the blessings of the kingdom, all those good things that are promised one day, the healing, and there'll be no more sickness, and there'll be no more tears, and there, there will be no more poverty. All of those things you can have today. You can have everything about the kingdom today if you only believe. And yet, the reason you're disappointed The reason you're discouraged, the reason you're disillusioned is because you did believe and yet that did not happen. The sickness did not pass. Death still came. The loss, the hardship, the affliction and persecution still came because the kingdom is not yet. Don't be deceived by any who say the kingdom of God or the day of the Lord has already come. It hasn't come yet. But just because it hasn't come, don't be discouraged that it's never going to happen. It will come. The Lord will descend from heaven with a shout. And everything he has promised will come.
So that's what to expect. Don't expect kingdom now when kingdom is not yet. And yet don't give up on the hope of what God has promised being fulfilled. So what do we do in the meantime? Like the, like the Thessalonians, as Paul described them early there, like that church, what do we do? How do we step into that? He gives three particular words of application at the close of this book. The end of chapter 2 and twice in chapter 3. He gives us three specifics. Let me unpack those for us. Chapter 2, verse 13. First of all, he tells us to stand firm in God's word. Hold to God's promises as God has promised it. Don't change it into something that I'd like God to promise this instead and change it into that. But hold firmly to God's word because what God has promised, he will perform. Verse 13 of chapter 2. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and believe in the truth. Oh, there's that. There's that tension again. Believe in the truth. That's something I do. Sanctification of the Spirit. The Spirit's work in my believing. That's something God does. I don't have to put those two together. They both occur. God is involved. That's why we pray. We are involved. That's why we explain. That's why we urge. That's why we reach out to others. That's why we're having vacation Bible camp this week. Because God will use us in the lives of others. And yet we pray for that ministry because God will work by his Spirit in that ministry. Sanctification or setting apart by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through his gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm. Hold fast to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by spoken word or by letter. He apologizes that doesn't mean just any old family or church traditions in general. He means those things that have been handed down from the apostles to the church through the ages. The truth of God's word that is recorded in his book. Hold fast to those things. Stand on God's truth and you will not be disappointed. So then, verse 17, in God's truth, God will comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Stand firm in God's word, first of all. Do you make time to hear from God's word? We gather together for that. There are not only time in our worship service, but there is time in Sunday school classes. There are, there are, there are Bible studies that happen in the midst of the week. Uh, not as many going on in the summer, but again, the fall those will start. Men's studies, young adults, women's, uh, high school ministry continues. Are you taking opportunities there? And is that just a connection time relationally? Or are you taking time to hear from God's word so that you can stand in it? So that you can know what God has said so you can live there. Are you feeding your soul? Are you taking time day by day, morning by morning to feed yourself on the truth of what God has said? Or are you living on stuff overheard? Are you living on impressions of what you remember somebody talking about that God seems to have promised? We, we, we feed our souls on God's word. That's the fuel for our faith. That's how we have the faith in God's word, what God has said to stand in the midst of tough times, which will come. Afflictions, even persecution, are normal. And yet God has given us his truth. Stand firm in God's word, first of all. Secondly, Paul says in chapter 3, verse 1, Finally, brothers, pray for us. Pray for us. Remember, we talked about belief. That's something I do. We talked about the working of the Spirit, something God does. That's why we pray. 
He says, pray for us. And I love the way he did I love this phrase. I still remember it in the New King James. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord will run swiftly and be glorified. I, I used to love that, run swiftly, because we were in a radio ministry where we were in southern Africa, and we would broadcast the, 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 the gospel programs as far away as Pakistan. And oftentimes we'd have no control over how it was received, but pray that the word of the Lord would run swiftly to its destination and be glorified there even as he says, as it has been with you here, that others would hear the word and receive it like you did. Pray that way. He says, pray for us that others will hear the Lord for the advance of the gospel, first of all. Verse 2, he says, pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men because not all have faith. There's a prayer gathering tonight for the CEF ministry in these vacation Bible camps that are happening all over the greater Portland area this next week because there has been specific opposition against them. Specific opposition against those camps in various locations and especially against the idea of them carrying on with a good news club in the fall at a particular school in the area where those camps have been held. There is opposition to people who do not want the gospel going forward. And they're going to gather tonight before these camps start. For all around this greater area, they're going to be gathering tonight to pray. Protect us from evil ones who would hinder this work because not everyone believes. That's why we do it. Because not everyone believes. He says to pray for protection from the evil one and, I would say, his schemes. Look at verse 3. But the Lord is faithful and he will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Do you pray for yourselves? Do you pray for one another that God would protect you from the temptations of the evil one? Remember the prayer the Lord taught his disciples? Lead us not into temptation or don't allow us to be led into temptation and to protect us from the evil one and his snares. We, we sometimes wrongly think, I'm okay, I got this, strong enough to stand, and we're not. We are not as strong as we think we are. Do we pray for ourselves? Do we pray for, for one another? Is there somebody else that's on your mind? Are you concerned? Okay, parents that are sending, I know there's parents here that are sending kids away to college for the fall, either for the first time or again. I suspect those parents are praying. Lord, protect them as they go. You have family that are scattered far and wide. You have very little influence and control over what's happening in their lives now. And yet, God has all kinds of influence. And so we pray. We are limited, but God is not limited. We pray that the Lord would lead other people into their lives. That he put other Christian friends among them. That God would use them there, draw them to himself, and use them to, to, to share their faith with encourage others also. We pray, especially to be protected from the enemy and his evil schemes. Look at verse 4. We pray as well for obedience. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we have commanded or instructed, exhorted. That we follow God's word. Do we pray for one another? That we will be following. Do I pray for myself? God, even before I enter your word this morning, help me to do what I read here. And number five is in verse five. Look at the goal of our prayer. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Pray for us. Pray for us for the advance of the gospel. Pray for us 
to protect from those who oppose. Pray for us for protection from the evil one. Pray for us that we would be obedient to what we know from God's word, that faith would grow and that Christ would be seen in us. Pray for us for a closer walk with Christ, as verse 5 describes, that God would direct your hearts all the more. Can you imagine there? You know how you, how you lead, even imagine, oh, I'm thinking in my mind, I don't know how many of you are from North County and you've been around horses and stuff, but I'm imagining taking a horse with the, with the lead line and leading it along toward where water can be found. And that, oh Lord, that, that, that you would lead me to where your cooling, refreshing water in the midst of this hard climb called life can be found. Oh, a closer walk with thee, my Savior. You know, we have a lot of people that are involved. I actually brought this prayer sheet up, up, up with me. We, we have a lot of people that are going to be involved in stuff this week, next week. And I think we should step into now. I think we should step into this, this, this part of God's word. We should pray for one another. I'm going to ask those that are involved in any of these three ministries that are listed on this sheet. I'm going to ask us to gather down here. And I want a couple of our elders to come forward as well. If you're in the VBC ministry this week, I'm going to ask you to come forward. If you're on the Mission Mexico team, I'm going to ask you to come forward. Go ahead. Uh, I, know, I know at least Kelly Wallstrom is here regarding the Young Lives Ministry. Ask her to come forward as well. That Young, Life, young Lives Camp. If you're, if you're involved in one of these ministries and you're, you're here and able to come forward, I want you to come forward. Just, let's just gather around here. This isn't a time for everybody else to look and to, be, and to recognize these are people involved here. So come on in. Let's come in and close. Get close to one another. Come on in close. Come on in close. Come on in close. And I want all of us, would you all stand up? And I want us to pray together. Let's, let's just get a little messy here. I'm going to invite you to go ahead and just murmur your prayer out loud, okay? I would like to just hear a holy murmuring across the room there as we are praying together. And I'll be quiet on microphone so that, so that we can just pray together. And then when you hear my voice come out again strong on the microphone, then you'll know that we're, we're concluding in prayer and we'll do that together of one mind and one voice. But let's just together, if you feel so inclined and free to do so, let's pray together out loud. Even those that are gathered here, pray for one another. Pray for yourselves in the midst of this ministry that God has for us in this next week, okay? Can we do that? A little weird. We don't regularly do this, but let's do this, okay? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we do pray for the advance of the gospel. Lord, we thank you for these who have these particular ministries set before us. But Father, we thank you that uh, this is your calling on each one in this room who believes in Jesus. As a church together, as your church, Father, we pray that you would use us specifically in these ministries, in these five-day clubs this next week, Father, that the gospel would advance. The, the word would go forth powerfully and be honored in that is received and heard by these children and even their parents. And it is honored within them that this seed of the gospel bears fruit that will last all the way into eternity. Father, do your work in this week. We, we ask your spirit to open hearts and minds, to, to, to spur and to bring children and, their, and, and families out. And Lord, to, to meet them there with your truth and your promise that they might be saved. Father, we pray for protection against those who would hinder not only the clubs that our church is involved in, but all over this area. We pray that you would hinder the enemy and you would hinder those that seek to oppose just because they don't like the gospel and don't want others to hear it either. Father, we pray that in the midst of these ministries this week and next, that you would also protect us from ourselves and the things that the enemy would use even within us to tempt us and draw us away to... to even to within our own hearts to separate us from you, to put distance between us, to, to, to tempt us out of, out of your light that we might be, yes, be less useful to you in advancing the gospel to others. Lord, protect us from the evil one and his schemes. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And Father, help us then as you have put in our hearts and minds uh, to serve in these ways to, to, for us to be obedient to it. Lord, for those of us that go to Mexico and encounter many different things, for us to do, for, do that with thankfulness and gladness and a joyful and willing heart to, to uh, face any unusual difference or difficulty that we, we encounter with joy and confidence in you. Lord, in this week and next in these ministries among children, Lord, that uh, you would do the same. Cause us to be obedient to you. Cause us to be obedient to you in our day-to-day -day walk, Lord, that we would not have a conscience that is hesitant to draw close to you. Lord, rather, as we seek, as all of these members in these groups, as they seek to give themselves to you, Lord, would you draw them ever closer. As they give themselves in sacrificial ways, Lord, would you show them something more of how your son Jesus sacrificed for us. Lord, uh, use us even as examples to one another of Jesus' love and sacrifice that we might be more deeply encouraged and that we as a church would be able to be drawn more deeply to you. Lord, we desire to do your work among us. We desire that you, by your Spirit, would do your work through us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And all who agreed said, Amen. Amen.